So when I worked for a newspaper in Seattle, one time I published this article and a city official said, that I lied in my article. She said, you made up these quotes. You quote as one of my employees and, and you made it all up. And so my, she called my editor. My editor called me and said, Patrick, you need to either stand by your words or you need to print a retraction. And I said, well, I've got my entire recording uh, interview on recording. And so my editor said, so you are confident that you reported this correctly? And I said, I am. I've got proof that this employee said this. And so she said, well, then you don't need to print a retraction. And um, I was always in fear of getting something wrong and having to make a retraction. That's what reporters just don't want to do. And um, as a preacher, I say stuff up here, and, and, and I'm not perfect, and sometimes I'm wrong, and I need to make a retraction from something that I said last week. Um, it's, I just need to come clean and be honest. Um, my wife knows more than just trivia about Beyonce. <laughs> I apologize. She also knows movies, music, pop culture, um, a whole bunch of things. And so that has nothing to do with anything I'm talking about today. You like how serious I was there? Everyone's like, what is he going to say? No, yeah. I apologize. Sorry. Sorry, Grace. She's, she's going to kill me after this. Uh, we're continuing a series this week called His Plan to Save the World, and it's a series based on a book that I wrote about how God is saving the world. Not God might save the world, not God will save the world, but God is saving the world right now, and we can get involved with what he's doing. Last week, I shared that the only way to change the world is to be close to the one who is already changing it. God is doing good, and if we're close to God, he's going to blow our minds with how much stuff that we can be involved in that he's doing. Today, what I want to share is what happens as we get closer to God. And this isn't like step one and then step two, because putting God into steps, putting God into a box just doesn't work. Instead, what happens when we get close to God is we also get closer to ourselves. I asked Clint to um, sing the songs by David today because David wrote a bunch of psalms that we sing thousands of years later, and I love the one that we just sang. And he wrote all of these songs, but we don't sing every single one. And I've always wondered why we don't sing all of his songs. And then I read some of the psalms, and I'm like, oh, that's why we don't sing this on Sunday morning. Imagine that you walk in, you shake Ernie's hand, you grab some coffee, and and Clint and Laura are up here, and they say, we're going to teach you guys a new song. This is based on one of David's psalms, and we're going to sing it. And and here's, here's the lyrics. It's from Psalm 41. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, a vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. I can't see that becoming a hit worship song anytime soon. It's just not going to happen. But David is expressing universal feelings here. David is saying, I know what it's like to have somebody turn against me. I know what it's like for people to hate me because I love God. David was so close to God that he shared everything. And we get to read what he wrote to God in these really personal times. His most personal is one of my favorites. It goes like this. For you created me, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Songwriter Martin Smith describes it like this, God, sometimes you're further than the moon, and sometimes you're closer than my skin. David understood that above everything else, above titles, above accomplishments, 
David was a child of God. When we move closer to God, we're not just moving closer to the Creator. We're moving closer to our Creator. And then we learn who we really are. When I lived in Seattle, I got to go to a really cool party one time. And my friend Lisa called me, and Lisa said, Hey, Patrick, I, I, I've got a year of the end, end of the year party with my office, and uh, you, we all get a plus one, so do you want to be my plus one? And I said, Lisa, I know where you work, so I absolutely want to go to the party. So I went home, put on some nice clothes, which is very rare for me, and I took a shower, which is not very rare for me, and then I headed over to the most expensive part of Seattle. And Lisa, of course, worked for the front office of the Seattle Mariners. And I got to go to the end-of-the-year party for the front office at the owner's house. And the owner's name is Chris Larson. Chris Larson is another one of these Microsoft guys. And I've got his picture up there. You can go to the next picture. That's Chris sitting watching his team play baseball. Chris um, allegedly lost billions of dollars because he chose to go to Princeton and not start Microsoft instead. But when I got to his house, I found out that Chris, he's doing okay. I go to the next slide. I apologize if this is creepy. I went on Google Maps and downloaded an image of this guy's house because it's just crazy. So I was sitting in that field next to the pool. This is all Chris's property in the most expensive part of Seattle. And um, we're sitting there next to the pool. And I say to my friends, I say to Lisa, man, this guy's house is huge. And everybody starts laughing. They say, uh, Patrick, that's not his house. That's his pool house. I found out this guy's pool house is 25,000 square feet. It has a ballroom. It has 17 bathrooms in his pool house. But then, as you can see, after the pool, I walked to the north, and I walked into his house, and I, and I went over, and as soon as I walked in, I turned to the right, because I saw some people gathered over there, and I walked in, and I don't know anything about art, but I walked right up to, within touching distance, of a painting by Monet. Right Right behind that, there was an entire room that was Chris's art gallery. And, and I walk up, and I, go, I knew instantly Rembrandt made that painting. I, I, I turn around, and there's a painting by Renoir. I found out that Chris is, has a bunch of these from a specific time period. And these are the, the paintings that I've seen in textbooks. And I could just walk up and touch them. I didn't, but it was just that close. It was surreal. But this wasn't the best part of the night. I, I left the art room, and I walked out, and there was a, a group of people, and they were kind of hesitantly wanting to enter this small room on the side, but they didn't want to because they, they knew it was an important room. I, I didn't work for the Mariners, so I was like, hey, guys, move aside. I'm going in the room. And, and I walk into the room, and it is Chris Larson's baseball memorabilia room. This is insane. I walk over, and I picked up, I shouldn't have done this, but I picked up a baseball bat that's over 100 years old that was used in a game by Ty Cobb. Over here was a base, multiple baseballs, one of them signed by Babe Ruth. I later found out that his baseball memorabilia room was worth over $7.5 million. His art was worth over $102 million. As I walk out of the, art, out of the baseball room, I, I run just face-to-face -face with um, all-star closer J.J. Putz. And I'm not looking at him like this. I'm looking at him like this. And my heart skips a beat. And then right behind him is all-star uh, right fielder, or at least he calls himself a fielder, Raul Ibanez. And uh, I, I, I'm around all of these guys that I love to watch play. And I'm just thinking, this is the greatest thing ever. You know who I didn't get to meet? Chris Larson. 
I never met the guy. I have no idea what he looked like till I downloaded that photo. But the more I learned about Chris Larson, the more I learned that he's a really good guy. He has had over 100 foster children. When he became wealthy, he said, here's what I want to do. I want to take care of kids. He also wanted to become, with his wife, an expert on what I think they said was 19th century art. And so they became experts. They learned about the painters. They created one of the biggest private galleries. And they said, this is what we want to learn about. But as I think about it, here's the thing about their expertise. No matter how many paintings Chris buys, no matter how much he learns about Renoir, he's never going to know as much about the painting as Renoir. No matter how many bats he buys, he's never going to know as much about the bat as the guy who created the bat. And in the same way, every single person in here, we are all works of art. And our author knows us better than anybody else we can get to know. So when we move closer to God, we're moving closer to our creator. And when we do that, we're going to learn some really cool things about ourselves. I love this line. In William Paul Young's The Shack, God says to the main character that humanity is the pinnacle of his creation. Sure, God created planets. God created music theory. God created kung fu. Have you thought about that? God created dark matter, which we still don't know what exactly that is. But God, when he looks at us, that's what pleases him the most. God is an artist, and we're his favorite work of art. So when we focus on God, he's going to reveal to us first that we are his children, his uniquely and wonderfully made children who are here for two purposes. First, we're here to bring glory to God. That's why we're here. But secondly, we're here to fulfill a promise that God made that the nations will be blessed because of the people in this room, the people who call God their father. God's going to use those people to change the world, to restore the world, to save the world. And so the more we learn about ourselves, the more we can know how God is going to use us. Uh, the students, a lot of them came over to my house on Wednesday, and we watched a video called Living on One Dollar. And it was so cool. It was about these um, two graduates, or these two uh, university students that were studying international development. And what they said was, one summer, we don't want to read books about international development. We're just going to go to Guatemala and live on a dollar a day, which is what the people in this village lived on. And so each of them, I think it says back here, 56 days, 56 dollars. And so all four of them each got a dollar a day. They didn't know how much they would get each day. But they lived on that, and they, so they, they bought some radish seeds, and they planted the radishes, and then, of course, they got sick. And then they went to the market and learned how to haggle, and then, of course, they got sick, and then they made some friends and got sick, and hey, it's a third world country, I get it. They got sick a lot, but they also learned a whole lot about blessing the community that they lived in. And afterwards, I told the students, I said, God is changing the world. God is blessing the world. And if you get close to him, he's put things on your heart that are how he wants to bless it through you. If we are going to bless the nations, all of us in here, we're going to do it in different ways. The things that you are passionate about are going to be different than the person that you're sitting next to. And that's intentional. And that's awesome. These two students felt called to third world countries and specifically to Guatemala. And they continued the work. And that's cool. But I know that's not what I'm called to do. I, I don't know anything about international development. Uh, my Spanish is horrible, as anyone who went on the mission trip will tell you. Yeah, man, I get, 
That's my first amen. I love it. Uh, Anyone who goes on the mission trip, Riley's going to laugh at this, knows that I am deathly afraid of bugs. Can I get an amen about that? Yeah, we know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I, I am confident with what I've been called to do. And, and I know that that has very little to do with international development in a small rural village in Guatemala. Now watch, we'll probably go to Guatemala on a mission trip next year and you can laugh at me. But God has given us our, our talents, our passions, specifically so that we can bless the nations in many different ways. And what I want to tell you guys today is how I found my specific calling, my specific passion direction that I wanted to go to. One Sunday night in 2007, I got on an airplane, and I remember this flight so well because I was furious. I I couldn't watch a movie. I couldn't read a book. I couldn't even sleep. All I could do was stare at the back of the seat in front of me and try not to scream. I was so upset because it was a Sunday night, and right before I got on the plane, I led worship at my church in Seattle, and we were teaching a new song to the church, and we worked really hard on being able to lead the church in this new song, and so we learned the chords, we learned the structure, we learned everything, and then the wheels fell off. At at, at the church service, we started the song okay, and then when the song got to the end, I strummed the last chord, my friend Jonathan hit the last notes on the keyboard, and then the drummer kept on going, and kept on going. And, and he's just loving it, has no idea that the entire band has stopped. Until I turn around and say, hey, the whole band has stopped. Why are you still playing? And it was, it was so horrible. People laughed, and, and we were worshiping God. But my philosophy to worship is that if I'm a musician, I want to give God my best. And that night, our band did not give God our best. We, we kept on playing, and it was just horrible. And that's all I could think about when I was on this flight. And so as I'm on this flight, I'm thinking, what went wrong? Did I make the mistake and the drummer was right? Did, the, did I not tell the drummer when we were ending the song? Did we play the song in the wrong key? No, wait, that wouldn't matter for a drummer because they're not musicians. Uh, <laughs> what went, hey, I got an amen for that too, man. And so I was just consumed by this question. What went wrong? That week, I was actually traveling to L.A. to, to um, spend the week at a church and learn about myself as a creation of God, learn about who I was as God's child. And one of, one of the many things that we did that week was we took a test called the Strength Finders. And it's an inventory that teaches you about the things that you are really good at. And one of the things that it did is so interesting. It told me why I was so upset at my drummer. What, it, what I learned was that one of my strengths is this strength called restoration. It says that I enjoy fixing problems. And so if I see a problem, I actually get energized by the opportunity to fix that problem. And it wasn't that I was angry at my drummer. It was that I had found a problem, and I said, I want to fix that. How do I fix that? I wasn't angry. I was energized. And so I figured out a way to work well with my drummer. I figured out a way to always be in communication while a song is going on. Something else I learned about myself that week was another one of my strengths is called significance. It told me that I am attracted to tasks that will make a significant impact on the world. I'm attracted to significant people, to significant ideas, to things that are going to last longer than I've been alive. And what that showed me was how God was going to use a person who's focused on problems, a person who's focused on significance 
in ministry. It showed me that ministry is not something that we do in a church, and it's not something that Jason and I do and nobody else does. Ministry is something that all Christians do, no matter where they get their paycheck from. It showed me that, my, that working as a pastor was a great fit for my personality and my passion. So when I learned about myself, my desires, my strengths, and my weaknesses, it helped me understand how God could use me as a teacher, as a musician in Los Angeles, as a mentor, as a minister. And as I understood significance, I really started to understand what God wanted to do in my life. Learning more about myself helped God see, helped me see where God was sending me, where I was going to go. That week in LA was transformational. God helped me understand just exactly where I fit in the world. And yeah, I was younger and that was part of it. But as I learned and put all of this into a book a couple years ago, I had this big question. I knew that God was working in my heart. I knew that God was teaching me about myself, that God was teaching me about me. And, and my whole thesis was, if we can live like Jesus, we will be used by God. But I saw nothing in the Bible about Jesus taking personality quizzes. I saw nothing, no scripture saying, Jesus was the most introspective person of all time. Nothing about, Jesus was 100% self-aware. I never saw that. So I said, God, I know you're working, but how does this fit in the scope of the Bible? So when I really started writing my book, this middle section, Learning About Yourself, I didn't know how to package it. Last week I shared that when we see Jesus as just a God on earth, we're missing half the story. Jesus was not just God. He was also fully human. And Jesus showed us how to live a great human life when we are here on earth. And one of those ways, and Jesus demonstrated this a lot, was through prioritizing God. Jesus did that by getting away from people, by bailing on people, by being alone. And Jesus did it a lot. But the thing is, there are many ways to connect with God. There's a way to connect with God that doesn't require being alone 24-7. You can go to a church service. We're doing that right now. You can go to a Bible study. You can go serve. You can go read the Bible. But every single time I saw Jesus react to a crowd, it was the same thing. I'm going that way. Jesus was always running away. And so if I'm looking at how Jesus connected with God, I started asking, why was Jesus always alone? Then I learned something that changed my perspective on Jesus, and that's this. Jesus was always alone because he needed to be alone. We're going to read about Jesus being tempted, and this is not just one story. We're going to be looking at different stories where Jesus is tempted, both in the desert, which is the big famous story, but where Jesus was tempted in many times in his life. And I want to read the stories the right way. We need to see the humanity in Jesus here. He's fully God and fully human, but at this point, Jesus is showing us how to live a great human life. Jesus didn't breeze through life. There were things that legitimately challenged him. Jesus was someone who, though he didn't sin, had things that challenged him. But here's the cool part. He won every single time. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus never got away from temptation by pulling the, hey, I'm God card. I don't have to deal with that. He never conquered things that way. He was tempted. Jesus was enticed by. Jesus was drawn to the sins that Satan put in front of him. 
but Jesus won. Jesus overcame those every single time, and that's why we can look at him. When we begin to look at ourselves as children of God, we can learn what we're good at. That's what I did when I was in L.A., but we can also learn what's going to challenge us, and that's what Jesus shows us here. Jesus knew the things that were most dangerous to him, the things that would most challenge him, challenge his mission, challenge what God wanted, and Jesus knew himself well enough to know for the things that tempted him, there was only one thing to do, and that was run away. Throughout Jesus's ministry, crowds followed him, and he knew what they wanted. When, when we look at the history, when we look at Jesus, we see that the, all of the Israelites at that time, they wanted one thing from Jesus. They wanted King David 2.0. They wanted a military ruler that was going to start an army, go to Rome, and kill Caesar. They wanted independence, and when they see Jesus, they say, hey, this guy, this guy can be our general. And Jesus knew it. He knew it, and there were so many people that followed him that didn't want the kind of Messiah that Jesus was going to be. John chapter 16, right after Jesus feeds 5,000 people, John says this, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. It doesn't say this was this big spiritual decision. Jesus saw, these people are going to tempt me with power, and it's not the power I want. So those people over there, they want to talk to me, I'm going that way. Jesus ran away. Jesus was fully aware of what came with the notoriety that he had. He understood its allure, and he knew that it was going to be a temptation that he couldn't conquer on his own. He needed time with God in order to stay centered on that task. And that's why he spent so much time away from people. Jesus was tempted his entire life with fame. And he knew it. It was a challenge, and he knew it was best to run because his goal was not to bring fame to himself. Jesus could have been anything he wanted. He could have been a politician. He could have been a king like we just read. He could have been a military ruler, a dictator, a general. He could have been anything he wanted. But instead, he chose to be what God wanted. So he ran away. He ran away from people, from crowds. He ran away from the disciples. He ran away from the very easy political position that he could have been given. And he ran towards God because he knew that's how he could conquer the things that challenged him the most. We're going to look at the story of Jesus in the desert. And I think this is one of those stories that we read all the time and it's kind of become ingrained in our brains. It's like a greatest hits of Sunday school. And I think it kind of goes like this. Jesus goes to the desert right before he begins his public ministry. Satan says, you want some food? Jesus says, no. Satan says, jump off this cliff and the angels will save you. Jesus says, no. Satan says, if you bow down to me, I will give you everything. And Jesus says, no. That's the story. Or so I used to think. When, when hearing this story, I always imagine that Jesus, he sees these temptations and he just stands up, looks at the devil and says, no. And then Satan goes, oh, okay, and, and, and runs away. Jesus just conquers Satan right here. But that's not what happens. Think about the last time you were tempted. The last time you were really tempted. What, what, what were you tempted to do or say? What you were, what were you where were you tempted to go? You never get tempted by things that you don't want. For example, I've never, ever in my life been tempted to spend $100 
on a soccer jersey. I don't like soccer. But I have seen Riley be tempted to buy a $100 soccer jersey when he knew he didn't have $100 to spend on a soccer jersey. And I am happy to say he did not fall into that temptation. Yes. You are only tempted with stuff that you want. I've never been doing a fast, a spiritual fast, and been tempted when Grace eats broccoli. It's never happened. But every time I fast, I, it, it's always like I drive past Blake's every single time, and I can't stand it because I'm thinking, oh, green, green chili cheese lotta burger. They have it on their sign, like, to tempt me. And then I'm like, oh, oh, they have pumpkin pie milkshakes too? Ooh. I want the cheeseburger. I want the pumpkin pie milkshake. And I'm tempted to break my fast because I want those things. You don't tempt a teenage boy by giving him a picture of his family. You tempt him by giving him a phone with Instagram and let him browse through the pictures of the girls that go to his school. So when the Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted, we need to understand that Jesus was being tempted with things that he wanted, with things that he desired, with things that to him were attractive. And so to think that he overcame these just by going, no, Satan, is to deny the very humanity that Jesus had when he was, he was on earth. Luke 4 begins like this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. I think we'd all be hungry here. Satan is now going to tempt Jesus. It says he was tempted for 40 days, and now these are like the last three that Jesus is going to be hit with. At the end of 40 days, Jesus, he's starved. His mouth is cracked. He's probably sunburned. He's parched. Jesus, he's weak. And so Satan offers him the kind of things anybody in Jesus' situation would want. Jesus is hungry. Jesus wants food. So Satan offers food. Jesus is lonely. He wants company. So Satan proposes a way to have the angels join Jesus. Then we get to the last temptation, the one that shows that Jesus did struggle, was tempted by the allure of fame. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. Satan led him up and spread out all the kingdom of, kingdoms of the earth on display at once. Then the, then the devil said, they are yours in all of their splendor to serve your pleasure. I'm in charge of them all. That's a lie. And can turn them over to whomever I wish. That's a lie. Worship me and they're yours. The whole works. Jesus refused, again backing his refusal with Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and only the Lord your God. Serve him with absolute single-heartedness. Satan offers fame and power. And Jesus wants it. Jesus deserves fame and power. Jesus wanted fame and power. Today, we learned about this last week, Jesus has fame and power. Time Magazine said he's the most influential person in history. Getting fame, power, owning all of the nations, this was Jesus' destiny. But Satan offers a faster, more painless way of getting there. Think about the other things that Satan could have offered. He could have said, hey, you want some water? Hey, you want a cell phone? Hey, you want bacon? Hey, you want a Jeep ride out of this desert? Because I can make that happen too. Satan didn't offer these things because these weren't what Jesus wanted. Jesus wanted fame. 
But as we know, Jesus wanted fame the correct way. Jesus wanted to become famous on God's terms. Satan was offering fame on the wrong terms. And throughout Jesus' ministry, this temptation never goes away. But what makes the difference between Jesus and everybody else is Jesus was so focused on God, he knew how to get past these temptations. In John chapter 9, this is crazy. Jesus heals a blind man's blindness by putting mud all over his eyes. And scholars don't really know why Jesus did this. Jesus didn't have to use mud, but for some reason, he uses mud. And the guy can't see, so Jesus says, go to this pool and go wash yourself, then you'll be able to see. So the guy washes his eyes, and people say, hey, that's the guy who's been blind from birth. How do you see? Here's the verse here. How then were your eyes opened? The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam, that's the pool, and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? I don't know. I have no idea. Jesus enables the man to see for the first time in his life. But what doesn't he get to see? He doesn't get to see Jesus. Jesus is running away from a potential temptation of fame. In John chapter 6, Jesus tells people, after feeding the 5,000, he says, you guys are only following me because I gave you free food. Free food is a great way to become famous. It's a great way to build a crowd. But this is not what Jesus is trying to do. So when he accuses these people of following him just for a handout, Jesus proceeds to give one of the most challenging, one of the most controversial sermons he'll ever give. And the response? Half the people bail. They say, what Jesus is teaching is too hard. I don't like this. I don't understand this. The food isn't worth it. Jesus, again, runs away from the crowds. Or actually, in this way, he gets the crowds to run away from him. It was a battle he fought his entire ministry, but it was a battle he knew he could overcome. He knew himself well enough to know these kind of situations are the most tempting to me. So when I run into these situations, I have to run away. I have to prevent these situations from even happening. The closer we get to the creator, the closer we're getting to our creator. When I was in Los Angeles in a time where I was investing in God and myself, I learned what I'm really good at. I learned what I'm really bad at also. Jesus learned how to conquer the things that were going to most challenge him. And he did. Though he was tempted, he never sinned. He can understand our weaknesses. But Hebrews says he never fell into the, into the temptation. Because when we get closer to God, we're, just getting, we're getting closer to the one who knows us best. We're getting closer to the one who knitted us together in our mother's womb. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me too lofty for me to attain. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. 
all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This is an awesome passage for me to read today. Because right now, as we sit here, God is knitting together my son in the womb. God is forming him. God is weaving him together. God sees the body that we can't see. And when he's born, Grace and I, we're going to be those parents that are always talking about our child, showing pictures, posting pictures, visiting grandma unless she comes to visit us because she's here right now. But no matter what we do, no matter how much time we spend with our son, God knows him better. God loves him more. And as much as he'll be a child of Patrick and Grace, he's going to be a child of God. Because we're God's favorite creation. We're his work of art. We're the pinnacle of creation. And when we move closer to him, we move closer to the one who knows us better than anyone else. And when we find ourselves with God, we find ourselves, our unique selves, our our passionate selves. We see ourselves serving with God in the ways that God has already created us to serve. Let's stand. God, I thank you that you created us all unique. I, I thank you that you gave us passions, you gave us skills, you gave us interests, not just so that we can serve ourselves, but so that we can serve each other that we can love each other inside the church, that we can love people outside of the church with the things that you have given us. Right now, I pray that you will put something on our heart, put a burden on our heart, put a person on our heart, put an idea in our brains that is what you want us to do as we are following you. God, I pray that you will find us ready to serve you, ready to serve alongside you with your plan to save the world. We love you, God, and we pray this in your name. Amen.